about to take you on a long, strange podcast. I'm your guest host, Tim Lynch, and joining me on this journey are Rock and Roll Archaeology Project founder and host Christian Swain and his colleague Peter Ferrioli. This podcast is a recap and discussion of each act, one through six, of the documentary Long Strange Trip, the untold story of the Grateful Dead. It's an Amazon Studios film directed by Amir Bar-Lev. The executive producer is Martin Scorsese. Check out IMDb for the full list of producers, which includes Justin Kreutzman, son of Grateful Dead drummer Bill Kreutzman and a filmmaker in his own right. Over the course of six weeks, we will be hosting this podcast and roundtable discussion and interviews with special guests featured in Long Strange Trip. We'll have Grateful Dead scholars and thought leaders, and we'll also talk to the undeducated, those who are learning about the Grateful Dead and being exposed to them for the first time through the Long Strange Trip. This is your spoiler alert. Spoiler warning. Uh, we want to assume that you have watched Long Strange Trip, at least up through Act 2, which is called This Is Now. We're going to talk about uh, both Episode 1, Episode 2 in the first part of this uh, episode. It's a roundtable discussion. And when we're done with Part uh, 1 of the show, in Part 2, we are going to discuss the entire four hours and all six acts with one of the guests who is part of the film, Steve Silberman. So please pause the show, watch up to Act 2 uh, on Amazon Prime, and come back and join us. Yeah, this week, joining us to discuss Act 2, this is now, as you just heard, we want to welcome uh, dedicated Steve Silberman, who not only is a deadhead that has written on the band and has co-produced the Grateful Dead's career-spanning box set, So Many Roads, 1965 to 1995, uh, and Steve does appear in Long Strange Trip. He is an award-winning science writer whose articles have appeared in Wired, The New York Times, The New Yorker, and many other publications. He is the author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity, published in 2015. It won the Samuel Johnson Prize for nonfiction and was named one of the best books of 2015 by The New York Times, The Economist, and The Guardian. We are excited to be among the first to say, hey, congrats, Steve, with congrats. the big news Woo! today. Uh, Paramount Pictures hey. acquiring the rights to Neurotribes. Uh, we will dig deeper with Steve in part two of our show. Hey, thanks. Welcome, Steve. So, Steve, you know, you, you called him dedicated. I'm going to say he's dedicated because yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go with our uh, our undeducated guest joining us this week is Erica Brett, 
Erica is the vocalist and keyboardist of the indie Americana band, The Empty Pockets, from Chicago. And Christian and I had the absolute pleasure to see The Empty Pockets uh, both open up and be the backing band for uh, Gary Wright, the Dreamweaver himself, and Al Stewart, Year of the Cat. So The Empty Pockets are sort of like uh, the band was back then, but not just do they back you know, some great musicians, they themselves... Uh, in their own rights, have are incredible uh, with their own original music. They were recently featured in Rolling Stone magazine. Their latest record, The Ten Centaur, is on Billboard. And welcome, Erica. Well, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Steve, you've been yeah. a, a longtime deadhead. Tell us about your relationship to the dead and why you're here with us today. Sure. When I was 14, I lied to my parents and told them that a friend of mine and I we're going to see the Allman Brothers, the Grateful Dead, and the band at the Watkins Glen Summer Jam. Uh, the line to my parents' part was that my friend was going. He actually yeah, copped out at the last minute. So I went uh, by myself with a sleeping bag. You know, I was like a 14-year-old Jewish nerd from, uh, you know, New York, New Jersey. I didn't know anything about, you know, festivals or really. Yeah, I'd heard the dead. I liked them, but I was probably mainly going to see the Allman Brothers. I got there the day before, and, uh, you know, the band uh, The Dead came out to do a sound check. And it turned into one of the most beautiful, about 20 minutes, completely improvised pieces of music that they ever played in their entire career, the so-called Watkins Glen sound check. So later on in my life, when I was, um, when I was asked to be one of the co-producers of the So Many Roads box set, I made sure that the Watkins Glen soundcheck was on that set. And basically, it was during my second show, which was 8674 at Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City, that uh, I heard Phil taking a lead during Eyes of the World, which was in the first set. Like, remember, this was before the kind of first set, second set dichotomy had been sort of firmly set, so they were playing this amazingly gorgeous uh, version of Eyes. I heard Phil playing lead. I'd never heard anything like that in my entire life. And I said, this is the best music I've ever heard. And I think that <laughs> moment actually is in the movie as well, uh, me saying that. But, um, you know, so basically I started going, and I think I took a hiatus for about a year in the early 80s while I was living with someone who didn't like the dead. But other than that, you know, I just kept going for the rest of my life, every chance I got. Steve's also the uh, co-author of Skeleton Key, a dictionary for deadheads, which came out, what, in the mid-90s, early 90s? Uh, yeah, it came out, I think, 93 or 94 or something. Yeah, right on. And so it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a, you know, the subtitle is called A Dictionary for Deadheads, but it was almost more like a work of, like, field anthropology in that we studied not just the band's history, but the culture that Deadheads had created, because we thought that was at least as interesting as whatever happened at 710 Ashbury. You know, what we didn't realize was that we were taking a class picture of the community in the last, like, you know, couple of years of the school. We didn't realize that Jerry was going to die. We didn't realize how quickly a lot of that culture was going to sort of blow away on a wind. And so I'm actually very, very happy that we wrote that book at that point because we were able to capture a lot of, you know, a lot of really special stuff and cute jargon and aspects of the community that 
otherwise would have been lost to history. And Erica, what's your relationship to the dead, if any, and why are you here with us today? I know a couple of Grateful Dead songs from going to overnight camp. I am also half Jewish, and one of the great, great traditions for Jewish people is to go to overnight camp when you're a kid. So um, we did a lot of a lot of ripple around the campfire, a lot of Uncle John's band. And now as a musician, um, I'm in a band, and my bandmates do not know anything about the Grateful Dead, nor do they really care to. And I will say that I watched the first episode with my husband, and I think he's turning the corner. <laughs> we get to all happens. sooner or later. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited. I'm it excited. starts with band camp and then goes from there. I'm really excited. And now I want to, like, now I need to delve into all of Steve's literature because now I'm, I'm, I'm voracious now. So let's. I suspect that the movie will act as a gateway drug for yeah. a whole new generation of fans. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I really am. So let's get into talking about Act Two, This Is Now, in which the Grateful Dead sabotage their chances at superstardom, yet find success on their own terms. What are your general feelings about Act Two? Well, yeah. as the noob, I guess my, my thoughts were, I wasn't surprised to hear that they were subverting everything the label was trying to get out of them. However, I thought it was fascinating to hear about Jerry's relationship with the tour manager and being fascinated with the uh, the Stones. That was I thought that was very. Um, I wasn't expecting that at all. Yeah, Sam Cutler. And I definitely want to know more about that. I you know that's that was really cool to me. Mm-hmm. And how about well, you, Steve? I think re- I think really uh, yeah. Just on uh, just quick note on Sam Cutler. I think what it was was that the the members of the Dead were completely impractical and you know they were you know, stoned hippies and post-beatniks and folk musicians and stuff. And so once they started to gather a big following, I think they looked to Sam Cutler uh, to see, I believe as Sam puts it, you know, how to run their trip. Like, they didn't know how to do big business rock and roll, and the Rolling Stones defined big business rock and roll at that point in history. And so I think they wanted to borrow some of his cynical expertise uh, and it right. worked out really well, yeah. And in terms of Act Two as a whole, I confess it's maybe my favorite chapter, even though I'm not in it. Um, I think it's absolutely <laughs> hilarious. It contains several of the most, you know, kind of unseen, previously unseen batches of footage, uh, including this incredible uh, section where the cameramen who are sent down uh, <laughs> to make a documentary about the dead's first European tour accidentally, you know, drink something that was being offered by the band. And everybody who knew who the Grateful Dead were at that point knew that you really didn't drink something that the band offered you <laughs> unless you wanted to really in fully invest yourself in the evening. And so these, you know, kind of adorably, naive, you know, British cameramen are there to make their little film and they drink from the, you know, the wrong coffee pot or something. And they are pretty soon applying special effects, you know, with the lens at an inappropriate level. And they're obviously super getting off on psychedelics and they don't know what's going on. And, you know, they start to get lost. And I, I can tell you what my absolutely favorite line and favorite moment in the whole documentary is. And that is, you know, they kind of practically flee the arena, the cameramen, because they can, you know, they're no longer making a movie. They're, they've been plunged into a state of existential 
you know, whatever. And so they're outside, and because it happened under, uh, you know, sort of the band's watch, Jerry feels kind of responsible for them, and so he finds them, and they're sort of lying around uh, in between these uh, big trucks, uh, you know, pointing the cameras at themselves and each other, and Jerry talks them down. And this is exactly what he says. I have the quote in front of me. They're, you know, they're freaking out. And Jerry says to the cameraman, I'll tell you what it is. It's the fact that these trucks are on either side of us, making it seem as though the horizon were quite high. It's kind of like being in a valley. And the human response to being in a valley is to think we're cornered. But we're not really. It's only an illusion because of these trucks. And if you step out to where you can get a little bit of air around you, so the horizon is below the center of your vision, you'll feel much better. So that's Jerry, like immediately, you know, sort of adapting himself to the mindset of where the cameraman must be, you know, taking probably, you know, Owsley acid or something uh, for the first time in their lives. He's giving them like practical, you know, perceptual tips, like kind of like Zen tips of like, well, just get out from between these trucks and you'll feel a lot better. And then, you know, shortly after that, he says, you could even put your cameras down and split, you know. So that shows how little interest Garcia had in immortality, fame, being the subject of a documentary. He doesn't give a bloody whatever. And, you know, but what he does care about is that these guys have a good time while they're hanging out with the dead. And Mm -hmm. so uh, that just blew my mind because it was – you know, uh, you know, Jerry hated the nickname Captain Trips, well, but that was like Captain Trips at, at its best, really. Now, this is a question I don't want necessarily answered right now. We can ask Amir some other time, but I wondered how that footage wound up in the dead vault out of all, because it wasn't theirs. <laughs> well, that was the point I was going to make, that how this they engaged you. You sat on the shoulder of Bobby and Natasha finding this footage. Then they go into the theater and... Uh, the fact that they bring you in from that angle and then they bring it, they 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 end the episode where Steve was saying with they the film is uncovered. They see why it doesn't come out at the end. What happens in the vault? It's it feels like you're part of the process in this whole part, and I love that. Go ahead, well, Steve. that's kind of part of the you know one of the most interesting things about the film is that it takes a kind of meta approach to uh, filmmaking. And in fact, if you know, I mean, I've seen the movie eight times now in wildly different settings. And one of the recurring motifs in the film is filmmaking itself. So you see a lot of, uh, you know, footage of film leaders and uh, film, uh, you know, just film. You become very aware that you're watching a film. And I think that was uh, really Amir's, one of Amir's points as an artistic director, like not as a deadhead, but as as really a film artist is that he wants you to be aware that you're watching the film and not to get totally sucked into the illusion that he's creating, that you lose awareness, that you're actually sitting in a room watching a film. So I thought that was kind of a, an incredible postmodern aspect to this film because the dead are not often thought of in postmodern terms, although you know I can talk later about why I think they were very postmodern. Yeah, I think the I, I felt the same way, that scene where... Um... They're talking about how just the idea of being in front of the camera wasn't very comfortable for them. 
And I think someone describes it that Jerry's like main attitude was, we're like you, we're freaks, we're not looking for a career, we don't know what the fuck we're looking for. <laughs> and how that attitude doesn't really work when being filmed because just by virtue of being filmed, you're establishing an otherness instead of a sameness. And that was, they, I think they very much established Jerry as this almost prophet figure. And maybe that's why we're supposed to know that we're watching a movie. That was Sam Cutler, yeah. again, who kind of ends up being the star of episode two, if you ask me. I mean, he is the captain of the pirate ship. He is uh, funny. no other way to put it than that. <laughs> He's a funny guy. I, plus, I could listen to him reading the phone book. <laughs> sublime. I love that he gets pulled over in the middle of it, too. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, totally. And he asked them yeah, to get his license out. That's another moment where Amir is playing with the the boundary of the uh, narrative. Yeah, he breaks mm -hmm. that breaks that uh, that fourth, fourth wall, wall there in the middle of it. He could have edited that at easily, but that yeah. added so much to it because it it, lead, it led right into the whole "I never carry drugs on me." <laughs> yeah. I love the way he talks about how it took eighteen months to get them just to agree to do a publicity photo. Right. That was, totally. That's hysterical. Yeah, 18 months. <laughs> totally. That is a long time. 18 months convincing them. Say, especially now that bands are so sort of, uh, many bands anyway, are so sort of image driven. Oh, you know, yeah. like, uh, you know, they have to be hot, they have to be slim, they have to be, you know, they have to have the dress on or, you know, the, you know, shirt. Now, and just yeah, just all the content, you know, just all the content for Instagram and Twitter and YouTube and social media. Like you really need to be comfortable in front of a camera at this point. Oh, we can all blame yeah, MTV exactly. for that. <laughs> <laughs> and that you know, the dead knew that they were, with the exception of Bob Weir, the dead knew that they were ugly mofos. <laughs> hey, hey, hey! Wait. So a minute. it's like you. You're not taking a shot at my, my bromantic buddy, John Mayer, are you? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. That's, that's, that's a that's leader. What, he's that's the long new, after he's the new Bobby. Yeah. I'm joking. Now that Bobby has uh, assumed the role of Jerry, they used to the new John Bobby. is the... <laughs> I won't argue. <laughs> he's I also like delivery, you know? I like that I'm letting you guys take the lead on this one. <laughs> but I do want to come back to you, Erica. What other moments uh, really stood out for, for you from Act Two? I loved how right after, um, sort of towards the beginning, there uh, they come out with the album that's the that's the strange name Oxa Moxa or something like that, right? Yeah. Did I say it right? The palindrome. Good, the yeah. palindrome. Yeah. yeah, the palindrome exactly. And how you know they were really trying to screw over the label, but then they. The one guy, the one guy goes out into like the woods, basically into the country, and then one by one, they all sort of follow him out to the woods, and pretty soon they're in the wilderness and they're in nature and they're they're deciding that they're going to have this totally new approach to the recording process, and um, I just like loved that they go into like the woods, like sort of like the musical Thoreau. And they, you know, I think he says something so adeptly. They set out to redefine what it means to be an American artist. I think he said that that was to leave home, set out, and go in search of America, which is so uniquely American. And I, I, that was fascinating to me. And then they cued my favorite song, <laughs> Uncle John's Band, which fits so perfectly. And then they show those, that little clip of them um, working on those, that vocal arrangement. I think that clip is probably my favorite moment in the film. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing. It's a clip of uh, the guys uh, rehearsing Candyman 
which uh, uh, that appeared on American Beauty, I think. And they they point out that American Beauty and Working Man's Dead were really almost like a double album. And right. both of them were, you know, much closer to their folk roots than Oxamoxoa or Right, right. Uh, the, yeah, psychedel- fact, uh, the psychedelic period, they'd moved out of that into 1970. Uh, you know, a lot of California and a lot of the California bands were beginning to pick up on the... Uh, the, the right, uh, and they, and they were... And the, right, and Jerry was specifically hearkening back to uh, Bakersfield uh, country and western. Sure. Um, yeah, and Buffalo also, Buffalo. something that I've talked to Robert Hunter about that doesn't uh, appear in the film is that another influence on them at that point was the band. Because oh, the band had exactly come out that. With, yeah, their first album, and it had been the thing about the band is that they created a, a song uh, you know, well, basically make, in the film, Dennis McNally says that the, that Hunter had created a quote unquote hyper literal Americana, and the same thing, you know, was done by the band and was a very big influence on Robert Hunter at that point in that they created a version of America that seemed to be very old. But these were all, you know, guys in their 20s. Like, they didn't really have that history. They weren't really cowboys. But they, in their lyrics and in their sound and in their presentation, they created the illusion that this music was coming from a a very ancient place. And that was really part of the appeal of the music and gave the dead kind kind of authority, really, in the same way that when the band sang The Night We Drove Old Dixie Down, it seems like it almost would have been a folk song or something. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, right. They were right. right. And, and also the context of this time is that the Back to the Land movement was going on very much in the hippie yes. movement. They, yeah, they'd all moved out of, the, out of the hate and out into the country. Now, do you all see this sort of happening cyclically right now? In the music industry? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, Americana yeah. is the next big thing, right? That's what, I mean, this is, this is how, I mean, you all are describing this, and I'm feeling like you're describing my life. So <laughs> that, yeah, I, yeah. Do, I do think, you know, Absolutely. music sometimes works in cycles, and it does, it does sort of feel like this movie couldn't be coming out at a more perfect time, because I, I really feel like I can relate to it, and I'm sure there's a broader audience beyond me. It's certainly yeah, a, 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 a unique American experience, as I, one of my favorite pieces of episode two is Sam Cutler basically saying, no bloody Englishman would ever <laughs> contemplate right. going to look to be leaving their home, walking so out of their house, and looking, <laughs> going and looking for England. <laughs> so uniquely American, yeah. so unique. Love yeah. it. But I, but I know when I leave this podcast, I'm going to go look for some empty pockets music right now. Well, there you go. Hey, <laughs> there you got a new fan there. Ah, I love you guys. Uh, so, Steve, what what other moments from Act Two stand out for you? I'll tell you one tiny moment and then one larger moment. A tiny moment is that I can decode a word that probably soars right over people's heads uh, when they see the film, but is actually a hilarious thing. And the reason why I know it is because it's a word that's in my book, Skeleton Key Dictionary for Deadheads. When Jerry is talking about the party for Playboy After Dark, where the Mm -hmm. coffee pot got dosed, (laughs) and then he says... uh, you know, the whole thing turned from an artificial party into an authentic party. Yeah. And when he's describing the sort of square uh, set that he arrives at, you know, that's the gig. They're in a Hollywood soundstage with people from Central Casting, you know, these extras. And he says, and there's Hugh Hefner, you know, and all these melons. And probably, like, virtually no one in the theater who sees this film will understand what Jerry meant by melons. 
But melons was like Jerry's personal slang term for basically straight, unhip, unpsychedelic people. So it was like uh, non hippies were melons, basically. Uh, and they, you know, they were, and so that's a, there was a little bit of like, snark, you know, inside snark from right. Jerry that probably hardly anyone knew what he meant. Um, but one of my favorite things uh, in Act Two is actually the very beginning, and it's because it establishes what becomes one of the central sonic motifs of the soundtrack, and that's Mickey Hart playing an instrument that he helped invent, uh, although he wasn't the, the originator beam. of the instrument, the, the beam. beam. Yeah. And um, what I love is that the part two begins with Mickey saying, drums give their life in the playing. They decompose. We beat them up. And what's interesting about that is that, A, it makes you aware that, yes, that is an interesting thing. Drums really have a, uh, you know, sort of a hard life. They get beaten up all the time. But what's interesting about that is that, obviously, one of the major themes of Amir's film is death and what death means in life and how accepting death prepares you to, to fully live. And so it sort of quietly establishes that death and mortality and the passing nature of the present moment is going to be a theme of the film. And, you know, then Mickey goes on to say that he's trying to invent a time and space machine with the beam. And he, you know, in that segment, he's fusing the beam with sampled voices and sampled instruments. And the beam as a sonic element in the soundtrack of the film sort of moves you back and forth in time. And I think uh, that's one of my favorite things about the film as the beam being played was one of my favorite things about shows because it was a completely psychedelic instrument. And it, it sets up a, a, a theme that will come back later in the film, both about the drums and world music and, and things like that and the connections. So the, the film actually becomes sort of a mandala uh, in, the, in the telling of the story. Yep, that's true. Erica, any other moment for, for you that really stood out? I really like when they're talking about how they want the freedom to experiment in the studio sort of for the first time. Well, I think it's while they're making Aksumaksoa. Mm -hmm. And um, but they wanted to learn it for themselves, trial and error. They were they were taking forever. They were costing the label a ton of money, and they call Joe and they say they need more money. And they're going. They decide one night to go to the zoo because <laughs> they're going to communicate with the animals and record it. Yes, and sure. then I can't remember if it's Bob or Phil who says, "No, I got a better idea. Where we're going to record dirty air, and then we're going to record clean air, and we're going to mix it as a rhythm track." Freaking weird and genius, and I don't know, but I really liked it. It was really, really funny. And I also liked that, Joe, that Joe felt like he had to do drugs with them once. Yeah, Just, that Joe Smith, yeah. the, head of, the head of Warner Brothers uh, at the time. Did yes. some nitrous with the band. Just once. Right. And, you know, what's interesting about the, the thing about the money is that, um, you know, one is – eager to think that the that the band ended up going in the country music direction because they were moving out to the country uh you know maybe they were a little fried they were over living in the hate ashbury which had become a den of junkies and mobsters and everything uh and so uh you know it's tempting to look at it as like this 
cultural evolution. Well, they're, you know, they're burnt out on psychedelics, so they embrace their roots. Well, yeah, maybe, but also it's like, Oxamoxa was freaking expensive. You know, is it like Joe says it was the most expensive album ever made at Warner Brothers by that point. <laughs> right. Um, and so, so it's like they had to find a very practical way to cut down the cost of recording. And so they do that by returning to the kinds of folk music forms that they all grew up playing. And that's one of my favorite lines in the film is they, somebody says something like, so we decided to go into the studio in this new way with the yeah. songs already written and practiced. Imagine that. <laughs> right, I know. Wow. <laughs> what a concept. Yeah. <laughs> I also liked hearing the difference yeah. of the other people on the label at the time, Petula Clark and Dean Martin and, and how Sinatra, different they yeah. were. Yeah. They just didn't have a Yeah, Joe says the wildest act we had was Freemy Lopez. Yeah. Right, right. And about going to the studio, I think Phil has one of my favorite lines from this episode where Phil says, you know, for us, going to the studio and making a record was like making an ad for the band. I love that I know, that was fascinating. Right, right. Yeah, completely Which is certainly true today. I mean, that's what records are now. They're pretty much just the advertisement to go and pay for a ticket to go see the show. Yeah, I mean, they they really... Something that I learned uh, from watching the film was uh, Jerry's commitment to music being the sacred space, not to be interfered with. Um, he seems to communicate, and they all do, that that performing is holy and it is not business. It is religion. Thank you, Jerry. Mm, very nice. Yeah, Which that, was that, beautiful, that... but... The... But how do musicians make a living in that paradise? <laughs> Amen. I, I mean? can't. I can't abide, man, because you know it's not paying my bills, baby. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, especially in the era of streaming services, you know, yep. Yep. Um, it's a complicated thing. Uh, I mean, the dead were able to do it, but they were able to do it in an era when you could you could still be a sort of a grassroots breakout band. You know, I mean, that's why Warner Brothers was interested in them, was that the, the, the original hippies in the hate had embraced them as like, you know, one of the bands, although certainly not the only one. I mean, Jefferson Airplane, I think got signed first and they were also seen as the voice of a generation but the dead were able to take it to much larger audiences because their music became much more sophisticated than even say jefferson airplane who i loved you know but their music became events uh because of their commitment to improvisation in the moment their music their concerts became events that you didn't want to miss because you knew that they would explore new space every night yeah. So, Steve, any last thoughts on uh, Act Two that uh, people should notice when they when they're watching it, or that you'd like us to think about? Yeah. Well, I love. You know, we were talking about the Candyman rehearsal uh, earlier, and again, it's like Jerry's incredibly practical way of expressing incredibly complicated things comes through when he tells Phil and Bobby, "You have to slide at the same velocity." You know, yes. think about that. It's actually a very sophisticated way of talking about what's going on in the music in the, in the simplest, most direct terms. Uh, it's not that he didn't want them to sing different notes. He wanted them to slide together at the same speed. And when you hear them do it, and I was actually, you know, frankly kind of surprised by how good Phil sounded, you know, in that uh, rehearsal. But it's like, you know, they, they, so they slide at the same velocity and the magic happens right there in front of your ears. And uh, I thought that was a wonderful moment. Erica, any last thoughts on Act Two? 
I guess one of my favorite parts was uh, they're talking about their collective improvisation and how they communicate together on stage. And uh, something that really stood out to me is um, somebody says no one person could think about themselves and sometimes and, and then together they could open the valve. And when I heard him say open the valve, I thought, yes, that is what the Grateful Dead experience is. It's the opening of that valve. And um, I'm glad to be on the road with you all learning about the get learn about the Grateful Dead. Well, Eric, as a musician, uh, I can tell you, you will learn a lot uh, from the Grateful Dead of becoming a better musician, a better stage performer, and Amen. trying to make that connection with the audience. Because that, to me, is the real special thing that those guys do. Very be beautiful. Better than anybody else. Yes, very, very special. I, 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 would, I would love to go get that. Well, we should thank Erica Brett for joining us today here on part one of this podcast. Thank you. That's right. Yeah, stick around because Steve and, and Christian are going to get into it much deeper into the entire part, not just limit themselves over to Act, act Two. Before we head out, Tim, I want to thank Tim, who is the host. Every Wednesday, you can listen to Dead to the World on KPFA if you're in the Bay Area or kpfa.org online. Every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Pacific time, check out uh, Dead to the World. We know all you dead fans, you deadheads already do, and those undeducated out there to uh, experience some great live shows, check that out. We also want to thank you, Erica, Erica Brett of the Empty Pockets for joining us. Uh, Erica, you know, her pockets are always empty as it is, and she <laughs> is going to be giving away two songs from their brand new album. Well, actually it's been out for a while, but their brand new high charting album on the Americana Billboard uh, charts. You want to text the word pockets to 444-999 and you will get two songs off the album. So Erica, uh, just before you go on the show, as our undeducated guest who, you know, just learning more about the dead, what, what are you going to take from your life with the dead? Do you have any interest in going and seeing them live? Are you going to listen to more of their music? What's your next steps with the Grateful Dead? Y'all, I just bought a ticket for Wrigley Field. No. Yeah, seeing ah. the dead at Wrigley Field. I mean, how much better can it get than that? It doesn't get much better. Right? And are you taking the, uh, the rest of the band, the boys? No, I'm going with my family who... Some of them are like really, really into it. So I, I'll get to, you know, tell them I had this wonderful conversation with you and pretend that I know a lot more than I actually do and, and keep learning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Again, thank you for joining us, Erica and Tim. And next week, folks, we're going to have our special guest, Grateful Dead photographer Susanna Millman, uh, will be our dedicated guest. And Professor Ron Purser will be our undeducated guest. So join us when we cover Act 3, Let's Go Get in the Band. All right. So with that, that's the end of uh, Part 1. And we're going to take it over to Part 2, where... This is your a spoiler alert where if you haven't watched the entire film, all four hours and all six acts, we are going to talk about it all. And Christian is going to dig a little bit deeper with Steve Silberman. So take it away, Christian. Okay, let's get right into it. So Steve, uh, first question was becoming a deadhead or a devotee to Allen Ginsberg, uh, the the first important thing for you? Wow. You know, I honestly wish I could remember the first time that I read a poem by Allen Ginsberg. Mm -hmm. It was probably a poem called The Supermarket in California 
in English oh, yeah. class in like eighth grade or something, you know? Oh, wow. But oh, I became, kinda, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, that was just, you know, reading a poem and relating to it. But uh, the first time I saw Alan was actually several years after I'd already become a deadhead. So I became a deadhead in, well, I saw my first dead show, you know, as we spoke earlier yep. at Watkins Glen in 73. Then I became a deadhead on 8674 at my second show at Roosevelt Stadium. So I was already, you know, in the pudding by 74. Um, but I didn't see Allen Ginsberg read until uh, actually probably 76. And that was, you know, a really powerful experience. I'd never seen a middle-aged man so fully awake and in his body and happy. And so I sort of decided in my heart that I would go help him do whatever it was he was doing. And the following year, which would have been 77, I went to uh, become his uh, sort of apprentice, it was called, at a place called Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. So I was a deadhead before I was into Alan, but um, the two things were very parallel in my mind. And Alan, you know, loved the dead, and he had gone to see them mm -hmm. yeah. way back in the day, and there's footage of him dancing at the human being. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I'll tell you a funny Allen Ginsberg's last Grateful Dead story. Um, in the 90s, uh, when he was, you know, quite old, we were driving back from the most unlikely event. He'd been asked to throw out the first ball at Candlestick Park for a baseball game, which he didn't know anything about baseball. They just asked him because he was a star. And when we were driving back, we somehow the dead came up. And he said, well, well, what's the best Grateful Dead song? And I said, well, you know, in a way, it's like for Deadheads, the best Grateful Dead song is Dark Star. And he said, what's that? Why don't you sing it? And so it's like, there was like a big fork in the road there. It was like, okay, I can't sing. Am I actually going to sing Dark Star to Alan Ginsberg? <laughs> but I figured, like, I, I better, you know. It's like if, yeah. if Alan Ginsberg asks you to sing Dark Star and you're any kind of a Deadhead, you got to do it, man. So I sang it, and he and I remember he said, "Hmm, Transit of Nightfall of Diamonds." I wonder where he got that. Oh, Robert. Oh yes, yep. that's right. Stolen directly from, huh? That's the great stealing <laughs> from the greats. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Very good, Steve. You've also helped to define the various sub tribes within the Grateful Dead scene, uh, along with uh, co-writer David Shank. You guys wrote Skeleton Key, a dictionary for, for deadheads. So how did you get involved? And, and what we all probably want to know most is how was the research? Well, that was incredibly fun because, uh, you know, I did everything from going to visit a commune that was populated by spinners, the, you know, uh, sort of mystical uh, Christian cult that formed around the band. So I, I went to visit this commune. Um, I went to the vault and met vaultmeister Dick Latvala, who ended up becoming probably my best older friend for as long as he was alive. And that was an amazing experience. I felt like I was, you know, right in the heart of it, like walking through these aisles of climate controlled, you know, cassettes and reels and, and uh, uh, dad tapes that, you know, I just like looking around, I would be thrilled because I would see these dates of shows that I'd seen listed in Dead Base, 
um, but that I'd never heard. And so it was kind of like being right in the belly of the beast there, you know. And I also uh, got to interview people who worked for them. And uh, every show became sort of more research. And I, I, you know, it sounds funny. It sounds like I'm snarking. It's like, oh, yeah, (laughs) research, you know. No, it barely sounds like work. (laughs) Well, it was uh, it was both because I was doing, you know, as I said earlier, like folk anthropology on this incredibly complicated scene. And that's how I looked at it. I felt like I was um, mapping a tribe that was virtually unknown to outsiders. And something that I used to think a lot about was that what if anthropologists heard about, you know, a sacred uh, mountain in uh, Peru where, you know, 80 times a year, thousands of people would come and take psychedelics and, you know, have a transformative experience. Well, you know, if such a thing had been true, there would be millions of books about that mountain and the rituals and the intake of the psychedelics and what did it all mean and what was the spiritual vision. But because the dead scene was happening in places like, you know, the, the silly spectrum, you know, and Kaiser Auditorium in Oakland, it was sort of under the radar of, you know, so-called serious uh, consideration. You know, isn't that just a bunch of freaks, you know, snorting nitrous or something and worshiping the 60s? Like people had this very, very shallow view. And if you saw the dead appear in media, you would always see, aha, dancing bears, you know, people having fun in the parking lot. But I thought something that was really significant was going on at dead shows and that it deserved a very serious in-depth, even dare I say literary consideration. And really one of the motivations that I had for writing about the dead in that way was, you know, we mentioned earlier my relationship with Allen Ginsberg and I eventually became his teaching assistant. Okay. Those guys were called the beat generation. And there's a lot in the movie about how the beat generation had been the, really the primary inspiration for oh, yes. Jerry and yeah. Robert Hunter. And so, okay, what was so special about those guys? Uh, meaning, you know, uh, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Neil Cassidy. And Kesey. Well, yeah. when you're young, you think, you know, when you're young, you think, well, what was so special about them was that they were enlightened. You know, they were amazing. They were so brilliant, you know. But as you get older, you realize, actually, it wasn't that. They were, you know, all those guys had significant problems. Kerouac drank himself to death. Mm-hmm. You know, Cassidy died on, a, you know, on a uh, railroad track oh, yeah. of, you know, exposure. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what was really special? What was special was that they noticed that the lives of their friends meant something and that their friends were occupying a particular point in history uh, that was interesting. Like they were the you know, post-World War II generation. They were growing up in this kind of ridiculously shallow um, culture, the culture of the 50s and housewives and everybody was supposed to get married and gay people didn't exist and you know, junkies didn't exist or if they did, they were disgusting. But what they did was they paid sort of holy attention, you might say, to uh, the real aspects of their lives. And by doing so, they generated a huge body of literature that is now recognized as sort of, you know, a classic period of American literature. 
And they did that because they paid attention to what was previously ignored in literature, which was the real experience of all of their friends. The and other, so I the, wanted to the, do the, that. Un, the, yeah, the, the, the freaks, the, the geeks that were marginalized uh, in society yep. uh, started to exactly. become uh, to the forefront. And uh, you know, obviously the civil rights uh, also helped in, in that, too, because, you know, you're, you're, you're getting this marginalized piece of society kept at bay for hundreds of years, beginning to demand itself rights. And then from there, others began to do exactly the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And Alan was gay, you know, and when he was mm -hmm. growing up gay, he felt like a complete reject and a failure and uh, you know, couldn't talk about it. And he'd been expelled from Columbia for being found in bed with Jack Kerouac. And, right. you know, so Alan, in writing the poem Howl, which was his breakthrough poem, uh, spoke shamelessly and fearlessly about his own homosexuality. Yeah. And that opened the door for a whole generation of gay people to come out. Mm hmm. Wonderful thing. Wonderful thing. So from from Skeleton Key, you get truly sucked into the family. You've done liner notes. Uh, you've worked with uh, with Dick uh, from Dick's Picks, as we said. And uh, and now how did you get involved in Amir's film? Well, uh, to tell you the truth, I was involved in Amir's film. Uh, no one knows this, actually. I was involved in Amir's film from the beginning because um, he you know, had read stuff that I'd written. There's a there's a piece of writing online called The Only Song of God that I wrote shortly after Jerry died. Uh, and the reason why I wrote it was because I thought that I would probably start to forget the emotional essence of what it meant to be a deadhead. And I was, you know, very much mourning Jerry at the time. We and all so I wrote us. an essay. Yeah. So I wrote an essay called The Only Song of God that was kind of like my attempt to put into a form that would last um, what the kind of mystical essence of the experience of being a deadhead would be. And it turns out that that essay was one of the things that inspired Amir to want to make the film. And wow. so when he was – yeah. So when he was originally um, uh, you know, trying to come up with a treatment – uh, to convince Martin Scorsese to produce the film, he asked me to write the treatment. And so he, you know, he hired me for some, you know, a relatively small amount of money to write a treatment, and they gave it to Martin, and he agreed to produce the film. Amazing, amazing. So Yeah, no, no one knows this at all. Well, I, I think the world's going to know now. So that's 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 <laughs> really great, Steve. Uh, now you you've seen it eight, eight, eight full times. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that is some dedication there. Can I tell you about two of the more unusual times that I saw it? Please do. Three. I'll tell you three. Uh, I saw a public screening, theatrical screening in Mill Valley, and Bob yeah. Weir and Steve Parrish were there. Yeah. So that was pretty intense. But then the t the two my two kind of favorite screenings. Um, I have a friend named Phil who is a hardcore deadhead, but too young to have ever seen Jerry. Um, and he's one of the most beautiful souls that I've ever met on earth. Uh, and unfortunately he has cystic fibrosis. And so uh, he's wrestling with some very, very serious health problems. So I went to Cleveland to show Phil the film in the hospital. Oh, and so we watched nice. the film on the hospital television. 
and I and you know Phil is doing better now. I'm very glad about that. Great. Um, but that was I thought a very very beautiful experience to watch the film with him. And oddly through, enough, through his eyes, through his eyes. And uh, oddly enough, as I was walking out of the hospital, I got an unexpected call on my cell phone from Bridget Meyer, who of course plays oh, yes. a huge Jerry's, role in the yeah, film. Jerry's girlfriend, both Jer- from the beginning Jerry- and at the end. Yeah. Yep. And she was kind of freaking out because she thought like. She had like this moment of profound self-doubt, like, I never should have been in the film. Who am I anyway? You know, Mountain Girl and, you know, Deborah were more important or whatever. So, you know, I told her that she, I thought she was actually beautiful and an essential element of the film. But that all happened, like, while I'm walking out of the hospital, you know. Oh, so that yeah. was pretty cosmic. The universe is speaking, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, exactly. And then the other – my other favorite time was – um I actually hosted the first very unofficial European screening of Long Strange Trip. You did? And I hosted it. I did. <laughs> For two Swedish teenagers, <laughs> uh, a very good friend of mine named Bjorn and his good buddy Eric, they are super hardcore deadheads who don't know any other deadheads in all of Sweden. So, I, you know, before the film came out, I had a, a, a DVD copy of the film. And I brought it to Stockholm, where I was going for a trip related to my book, Neurotribes. And, uh, you know, I hosted the screening, and it turned out to be an amazing sound system because Eric's father is a rock photography collector. So I walk into the apartment. There's all these, you know, incredible photos by Jim Marshall and Henry Diltz on the wall. And, And of course, he had, like, this awesome, you know, sound system. So that was actually the first time I ever heard the film with a subwoofer. And it turns out that a mere put all these, you know, lots of like really low bass, you know, content into the soundtrack to take advantage of uh, a really good sound system if you had one. And so that, and we were all, you know, all three of us were in tears by the end. Uh, You know, it's incredibly uh, cathartic and and, uh, moving and wrenching in some ways experience. Um, So that was another beautiful moment. Yeah, Amir, when we interviewed him, was was really insistent on trying to get as many people as possible into the theater, into a good sound system to hear the uh, 5.1. Uh, so yeah. if you do, folks, if you have uh, a high-quality sound system or if you know somebody who does, uh, take this film uh, off Amazon and, uh, and listen to it uh, through that. Uh, all right, so you've seen it eight times. What would yeah. you have added or what would you have taken out? You know, uh, that it's funny. I mean, that's kind of the hot topic in, you know, Deadhead Facebook groups. It's like, uh, I have to say, you know, sort of my least favorite comments, my least favorite school of comments in in any discussion of any art uh, form really is, where's blah, blah, blah? You know, oh, everybody yes. has this yeah. laundry list of where's blah, blah, yeah. blah. Where's Vince? You know, where's Mountain yeah. Girl? Yeah. You know, where's where, Mountain Girl? Well, yeah. where's Vince? Where's Vince? I will leave that question alone. But, um, you know, where's Mountain Girl? I happen to know that Mountain Girl, who, by the way, would have been an incredible addition to the film, uh, that Amir pursued her for a long time and she declined, which is obviously her right. Uh, I believe she's writing an autobiography that I can't wait to read. Maybe she didn't want to spoil the autobiography. Uh, I, you know, if I were her, I would have done it differently. I would have seen the film as an ad for the autobiography. Oh, yeah. But, you know, uh, so, you know, if you look at a film 
or if you look at anything, you know, it's like going to a dead show. There would always be people that's like, man, they didn't play, you know, here comes sunshine or whatever. It's like, really? But what did they play? <laughs> you know? And so I would say, you know, the only, what would I have done differently? I would have had a little section about Dick Latvala because he really, um, you know, yeah. he started out as a deadhead. He was right. in Keeper like some vaults. crazy mm-hmm. sex uh, commune in Hawaii when he was young, smoking weed making uh, very detailed notes about dead shows in his notebooks, as millions of deadheads do, you know, but his notes were killer. And he eventually, you know, through a chain of events that started with him being really the gopher for the road crew, he would get them coffee and sandwiches and whatnot. Um, You know, he ended up becoming uh, in control of these vault releases. And that was part of a larger movement within the dead organization that, that I was a part of too, where they started to see that they needed to kind of air out their trip a little bit in terms of choosing um, things for release. And so they started to, you know, you know, luckily they had millions of experts, you know, ready to to give their opinion. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, they started to ask deadheads like Dick, who, by the way, uh, most people don't know this either, but Dick, um, the whole time that he was, choosing the dicks picks he was consulting with the deadheads who were on a very early online community called the well um and the the well was a Mm pre-web online community and i used to write dead shows for the well uh uh, sorry write reviews of dead shows for the well um and in fact that's how i eventually met my husband was that he read my reviews of dead shows from the well nice um yeah yeah and so um you know, eventually the dead realized that by keeping everything in-house and limited to the band members, you know, choosing, uh, you know, there was one release called something like From the Fill Zone, and it was fine. You know, it had the amazing hard-to-handle from Hollywood Pavilion, uh, but it was kind of a mishmash in a way. It was like it had stuff from different eras, and, you know, that was Phil's choice. Um, they needed external voices to say, Hey guys, let's put out full shows from you know various golden eras. They didn't even think in terms of golden eras. They they didn't care. They didn't look back. You know they they uh, were always focused on the music they were making in the present moment and for the future. And they were so too close. To they back, were too close to the art. They were yeah. too close to the picture. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so that's how Dick became Dick of Dick's Picks. And uh, you know, so I met him in the course of researching skeleton key and that was really fun and you know and then the you know the poignant thing was that when uh, the morning that jerry died uh you know my book was like the uh uh the newest book on the subject and so you know i had to jump in a cab and go down to yeah yeah and yeah i had to go down to the radio studio and I, i remember something that happened in the cab actually which was that the um the driver was a rasta and uh, news of Jerry's death came over the radio, and he said, I don't know much about the Grateful Dead, but I know that Garcia was more like Marley. He wasn't just a musician. He was a prophet. You know, so, so that was really heavy. And, yeah. You know, and, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, one of the heaviest moments of my life. Oh, yeah. So you would definitely have Dick Latvala included in uh, in the picture if you could uh, could recut it but you know since uh, you are now officially in the movie business uh, can you see a follow-up film 
<laughs> yes, I can see dozens of follow-up films. Right. But they are follow-up films made by other people, right. uh, you know, unto the far future. I mean, if anybody thinks this is the last, uh, you know, Grateful Dead documentary, uh, you know, they're, they're ridiculous. It's more like the first, you know. And so, you know, it's too early to call this film definitive. I think it is an incredibly ambitious and incredibly satisfying and successful film. But there are many, many other films that could be made out of this rich and complicated life that they had. Um, it could be seen from many different angles uh, with people who were not even mentioned in this film. And, uh, you know, I, I'd love if I, you know, I hope if Mountain Girl publishes her autobiography that it gets turned into a film. You know, I think that would be a wonderful story to see uh, the dead scene from her perspective because she's such a wise person. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, you could yeah. see a movie of that, the romance between her and Jerry, uh, all the kids and yeah. everything. Uh, definitely. So yeah. what are your what are your thoughts on the various incarnations since Jerry passed? Because, you know, the film ends, uh, you know, with Jerry, uh, basically. It is it is the story of the Grateful Dead. And then after that, you know, you you have the other ones and further and and now Dead and Company. Uh, what are your thoughts on 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 the, the 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 next chapter? You know, I wish I could say, man, I've been going every show, and it, you know, it's been amazing. Like, eh, it's not like that for me. For mm. me, um, basically, without Jerry, something essential is missing, and it's never going to be replaced. Now, does that mean that I don't like hearing Dead and Company shows or whatever? Not at all. I think they're kicking ass. Actually, I've been watching the webcasts. Um, I think John Mayer is really trying to fill un absolutely unfillable shoes. Uh, I think that you know, I'm really glad that Mickey and Billy are still doing drums in space and really taking it out there. That, is, that alone, the drums in space, is some of the most important music that's been being made in this country, I think, you know, for many, many decades now is what mm -hmm. they've been doing with drums in mm -hmm. space. The rhythm devils, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the post-Jerry show that blew my mind with energy the most was actually a very early one. It was Phil and Friends, one of the first incarnations, I think, in 1999 with Trey Anastasio and Paige McConnell from Fish. Yeah. Um, they played a like a 14-minute uh, viola lee uh, with Steve Kimmick playing as well. That really holds up as a tape. You know, and if you want to talk about like, well, how good are these incarnations? One way to look at it is, okay, how do the shows hold up on tape? Uh, and the truth of the matter is there are probably very few um, post-Jerry incarnations where I really listen to the tapes a lot. I mean, uh, uh, O'Teal sang a beautiful China Doll. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I missed it by a night. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, it was mm -hmm. exquisite, you know. Mm -hmm. That I would probably listen to again. But for me, what it is, and, you know, I don't mean to piss anybody off by saying this, uh, but... For me, what it is is that Garcia was the leader of the narrative in the music. Like he was always taking the music somewhere that sounded like he really knew where he was going, even if he was making it up. And he led the whole band in that direction. And it gave the, you know, quote unquote jamming, like people, people hear jamming and they think noodling, you know, like it's just riffing on chords. That was not what was happening whenever Mr. Jerry Garcia was in the room. You know, if Jerry was playing, no matter how loose and chaotic and unplanned and off the cuff 
the music was it was going somewhere because he was always going somewhere. And so, you know, it turns out that, you know, Jerry always used to say, I'm not the leader, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I understand where he was coming from with that, but he was lying. You know, he he was the leader. Uh, and in fact, Bruce Hornsby once said to me that he thought of the dead as the Jerry Garcia Orchestra. And at the time when he said that to me, I thought, well, that's a little harsh. Haven't you heard all the times that Jerry said he's not the leader? Looking back, both Bruce, you know, Bruce was right on that. You know, it, it was, uh, I think they were really, the dead were really best at supporting Jerry at what he was doing uh, musically. And uh, he gave them a drive and a sense of purpose. And I suspect he also helped sculpt the set list. You know, now you have these kind of unbelievable set lists. Oh my God, Dark Star into Ripple in the middle of the set. You know, <laughs> it sounds good on paper, you know. But the truth of the matter is that the set lists, as they were, you know, sculpted when Jerry was playing, I think had a more um, coherent narrative in a way. Um, so, you know, do I support these guys still playing? Yes. You know, is it just a big cash grab, as you constantly hear these bitter deadheads say? You know, in Facebook groups, no, man, they have every right to to uh, to play the music that they uh, helped invent, you know, for as long as they're alive. And I'm grateful for every single moment that they play together. And I certainly look forward to seeing them. But, you know, do I, you know, do anything on Earth to get tickets anymore? No, I don't. You know, I am content to do the couch tour, uh, really. And plus, I'm getting oh, my God, I'm almost 60. You know, I can't look like, oh, hush. to wait in line. You know? <laughs> well, <laughs> Steve, anyway. let's yeah. leave it there. That's that's a, a great way to end it. But I'm going to ask you one last question. If I sure. remember correctly, you do have the last line in the picture. Can you recite it? Yeah, for that's us? true. I say, you know, I think I'll probably have more in common with the deadhead 500 years from now than I do with many people who are alive now. Because I'll understand something deep about them. I meet kids now who are too young to have ever seen Jerry Garcia, and yet they are just as much of a deadhead as people my age ever were in the 70s. I don't feel like anything has been diluted or lost. And one sad thing that I would relieve them of feeling is that they had missed it. Because the thing that the dead and deadheads created together will keep working its magic in whatever form it's transmitted into the future. So that's what I said, and I completely believe it. I think as long as the music is preserved, and now you know, now we have like what we always wanted, which was access to the entire vault practically through archive.org. I think people will be coming, will be becoming deadheads 500 years from now. They will self-select, you know, kind of like smart nerds who know how to, you know, have deep feelings about atonal music and improvised music and chaotic music in their own hearts, I think we'll find the music as if it's a kind of destiny and then find each other, the community of people who appreciate this music. So I well, think that is uh, going to be transmitted into the future. That, that, that is a big point of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project itself is that this particular music from, you know, we say about 45 to 95, 
uh, strange it happens to be the year Jerry passes, but there are other technological and cultural reasons that we use, uh, that this was a very, very special time, a big change in, the, in, in humanity. Uh, and as uh, the, the future uh, progresses, uh, people will more and more look back on it, similar to how we look at the Italian Renaissance. Absolutely. To diverge a little into a different tribe, let's bring up your book, Neurotribes, which the New York Times called Beautifully Told, Humanizing, Important. It uh, was one of the best books of 2015 by many prominent news organizations and has received several prestigious awards, as we talked about earlier in, uh, in uh, our, uh, our podcast, uh, as well as the endorsement by the amazing neurologist and science educator, the dearly departed Oliver Sacks, uh, who wrote the foreword. Uh, let's discuss the beginning, which I believe was an article in Wired magazine called The Geek Syndrome. So how did you and why did you delve into the subject? Here's the thing. Hardly anyone realizes that the guy who wrote this best-selling book, Neurotribes, is also the guy who's, you know, pictured wearing a shirt that says, your hallucinations are my costume <laughs> in Long Strange Trip. And I want to tell you just one thing about that photograph. I didn't even realize that Susanna Millman had taken that photograph. I didn't realize there was any record of that T-shirt until I saw Long Strange Trip. So all of a sudden, I'm seeing a piece of my own past that I didn't even know anyone had ever recorded you know, wow. photographically in front of my eyes. So that blew my mind. But what people don't realize is that there is a central um, sort of a theme to both books, and that is that deadheads developed this amazing culture together, and yet it flew under almost everybody's radar right. unless you were already in the community. And what Neurotribes is, is it's the first comprehensive history of autism that mm -hmm. puts autistic people and autistic culture at the center of the story. Because they've always been described through the lens of medicine and psychopathology. So right. basically every major you know, book about autism you know, looked at them through a medical lens. I looked at them through the lens of talking to autistic people and finding out how they feel, how they feel moment to moment, trying to navigate a world not built for them. And deadheads also, you know, in a sense, ha have to navigate a world that's not built for them, really. Right. You know? And so I, I feel like both books were tributes to a community that was able to find itself, even though the world was stacked against them in many ways. Uh, and they were able to attain their own voice and their own forms of enjoyment and their own forms of celebration, despite the fact that both groups are kind of heavily stigmatized by mainstream culture. So to me, the, uh, the point of connection between Neurotribes and Skeleton Key was that they're both books about uh, cultures made up of people who have an incredible amount to offer the world but had been virtually ignored by the mainstream. Marginalized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, very cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time uh, today, Steve Silberman. We had a great time with you and look forward to uh, getting with you again in the future. Awesome, buddy. Thanks so much.